It's Monday, March the 9th. This is LA Podcast. I'm Scott Frazier. We've got Alyssa Walker here in LA. Hayes is calling in from Big Sur, California. How's it going, guys? Yes. Oh, how's it going? It's going great. I have I can tell a quick Big Sur story that you will appreciate. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so when we, when Geneva and I come up here, we stay at this like little cabin, you know, Wi-Fi or cell phone service. I'm uh, sitting in the parking lot outside the uh, Big Sur Tap House right now, which is the only place um, where I can make phone calls. And it's up the street from this nice like little beach. Yeah. Uh, and we found out that since the last time we were here, so the road down to the beach is like pretty narrow and um, kind of scary. And since the last time we were here, someone was hit by a car on the road. Oh, I don't wow. know what, if they were killed or not, but someone was hit. Yeah. Guess what uh, they did to respond to that? Fully pedestrianized the road? Very close. Really? They fully motorized the oh. road. Oh. <laughs> so. It is now a car-only beach. We walked down there yesterday, all the way to the beach, to the like gatehouse, basically. Uh, and they said, there's no pedestrians, nope. you cannot. Now you have to go back right. up this road. So yeah, in the tradition of Jack Kerouac and Henry Miller, uh-huh. it's now a beach only <laughs> all the people with cars. That's my big sir story. Oh my god, Alyssa, do you have anything? That I don't know how to top that. Our our practices have gone all the way. I can't. They'll probably do that soon here. I feel like on the PCH, they'll be like, you have to drive here and park in a parking. I mean, they've spot. already kind of tried. Yeah, exactly. To do that I mean, in LA. yeah. We have that incomplete skyway in downtown LA. That's like <laughs> pedestrians being on the street is unsafe. <laughs> Um, I'll just talk about just a few things I witnessed this week related to coronavirus and and what we're kind of going to probably start to sort through more in in the week ahead. As a recap, we'll talk more about this, but we declared a state of emergency this week here in LA and LA County. But if you look at some other large cities on the West Coast, Washington State, or right. California also did, did declare a state of emergency. Washington State, we have um, San Francisco also uh, not only declaring a state of emergency a few weeks ago, but instituting some pretty strict guidelines. Not strict, we're not like authoritarian right. level guidelines, but some pretty different ways of uh, warning people about moving around the city, big gatherings, things like that. And I wrote a piece on Monday just about, yes, get some emergency supplies, but it's not as much about what you can put in your car from Costco as it is about going door to door and finding out who needs the most help in your neighborhood. So just a few like local things I witnessed just from just from talking to a few people on my block and just my you know interactions from people who are maybe not as online as we are. I had neighbors that didn't know that older people were more likely to be infected with coronavirus, which I think is very troubling. And I also wonder about the sources of news that get to people who are older and how they process the, you know, the various levels of information that are given to them. We know our federal government isn't doing a great job getting the most accurate information. They're not even trying. They're not even trying. And if you look at, say, certain news broadcasts, Fox News, they'll go with what the president is saying, which is like 15 people have it, you know, or something, you know, so we, and by the time we record this, you know, by the time it comes out, the numbers will be different. I'm not even going to like go through them, but we really need to be like a human to human connection to people right now. And yes, they're saying like social distancing and isolation and all this stuff, but 
you have to make sure that people on your block, you know, if they're going to get sick, if they can't buy something, we're hearing things of people trying to order things right. and they, or they go to the store and they can't buy them. I actually, I'm not having that problem in my neighborhood. I feel like if you just walk to the store in the corner, they probably have it. Don't drive right. to Costco. Don't go to Costco. <laughs> yeah, don't Don't go wait to Costco. in the two hour long line. Or go to, you know, a lot of the more like the Korean markets and stuff. They, yeah. They've seen these news reports from their relatives and, you know, and the other side of the world who have already been through a lot of this and they've been stocking up for, you know, weeks. So it's, uh. it's really interesting to just see the cultural differences, but that can also play out block by block, especially here in LA. So I would just really encourage if you've taken care of yourself, that's great. But like there might be someone next door or down the hall that really does not know what mm -hmm. you know, because also I don't think the city has done a great job. I don't know what they, they, they issue a state of emergency that scares people. But then the next level, level of information is just wash your hands, stay six feet away from people. But I'm not sure how much more I'm not sure how much more yeah. people are getting. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about that later in the episode, too, with the, the marathon being having been this past weekend. And and I think also we have sort of a theme of how government gets information out to, to residents of the city this week as well. Um, but what better way to make a human to human connection than to run 26 miles in a big pack yeah. and <laughs> spit and vomit all over the city together? It's funny because I, well, I should wait till later, but I just I was looking at some pictures from the marathon and you just have like some like stills of all these people not standing six feet away from each other. And I'm just yeah. like looking at this high res image and I'm like, how many of these people are sneezing right now? Some of them are mid sneeze as I'm looking at this picture. <laughs> and don't worry, a lot of them also just got off a plane traveling. <laughs> Um, from other cities to, to get here my my la story in the grand tradition is is not about anything that i it's like a, a, it's a more of a thought experiment i so i've been trying to relearn how to do some of the data mapping stuff that i i do kind of frequently online google got rid of their fusion tables tool which i had previously been using to map things like election results i didn't even download my old files, I kind of just, you know, let those go into the abyss. But now I'm learning how to use GIS. So I've been looking at early returns from the election that just happened this past Tuesday. One of the things that I, I think, and since we are going to talk in depth about the election results in just a minute, one of the things that I really want to bring attention to, uh, and I'll use my LA story to do this, is that we are about to go through the every 10 year uh, process of redistricting city council districts. Yep. This is something that I've been trying to to highlight a bit for people who follow me on Twitter. But basically, the process for redistricting in LA is extremely political. We think about we tend to think about redistricting and gerrymandering as something that happens in contexts where you have like maybe one party with a narrow majority of registered voters over a different party. Obviously, that's not the case in Los Angeles. There are an overwhelming number of uh, Democrats registered in the city of L.A. There are 14 Democrats on city council and one former Republican now independent. So you might be tempted to think that redistricting is a non-issue here. That's actually extremely not the case. One of the things that we've talked about repeatedly on this show is the the sort of hindered development of Koreatown as the densest and most populous neighborhood in the city into a political power. Part of the reason why that's the case is because during uh, the last redistricting period, 
the city council kind of put their thumb on the scale and split Koreatown up into four different districts. The, the way that this is supposed to happen is they're supposed to the greatest extent possible while making all of the districts have about the same number of people in them. They are also supposed to like keep neighborhoods relatively intact, not split up voting blocks, things like that. Turns out that's very difficult to enforce. And the way that redistricting happens is each city council member gets to pick one person that they just will have on this commission, not allowed to be an employee, but it can and will be somebody who is like close to them in some other regard, either a friend or a friend of a friend or a former employee generally, somebody who is going to do what the council member asks them to do. Uh, a couple other officials, including the mayor, get to pick people to serve on this redistricting commission. And then they take whatever comes out of the census, which obviously is just getting started right now, should probably be wrapping up about the end of this year or early 2021. And they take whatever comes out of that and they use it to draw up new districts in ways that are favorable for themselves keeping their seats. So I want people to be thinking about this because we have seen in LA, I know, so last week was Super Tuesday, and a lot of people were looking at national results and saying, you know, like the Democratic Party is moving towards like moderate safe harbors. Nationally, that might be the case. If you look at LA, LA is becoming more and more progressive in a way that it really has never been in its entire history. And I'm not going to say that we can take full credit for that, but I am just going to say... We the podcast? Yeah, we the podcast. I'm not going to say that we can take credit for that, but it is, uh, it's a distinct thing that is happening. And I think that when we have the, the history, uh, the recent history of the city council being a force against progressive action being taken, that we should start to pay a lot of attention to who is going to be on this committee to draw up the new district lines and how the city council might attempt to uh, tamp down on the, the progressive upswell that we're no doubt going to see in the city continue to occur. So that is definitely something I think we should look at and, and, and keep talking about. And one going thing forward. you highlighted in your research on Twitter was the most progressive district, which is... Council District 13. We, we've been saying it. You live in CD 13, Alyssa. Yeah, so yes. do I. And and it's far and away like the I was just looking at early returns. So typically speaking, the more conservative ones. And and I was looking at the number of people who voted for uh, Bernie and the number of people who voted for Warren in a given precinct. And uh, a vast majority of Council District 13 went for those two candidates at a clip of like 70% plus of the precincts. Wow. So, so you compare that to the person who's currently representing them who went out of his way, Mitch O'Farrell did, to torpedo the candidacy of a viable progressive in one of the least progressive districts in the city, CD12. Mitch O'Farrell came out and supported John Lee, endorsed John Lee, who doesn't think that the Green New Deal is a good idea, who thinks that we need to like keep burning coal energy plants in, in places outside of the city of L.A. And it's it's not good. And it's starkly at odds with, I think, what his district actually wants to see. So be aware. Uh, be aware be, when the lines get redrawn. Be aware they that, try to. I, I mean, we, we, we hear frequently that Mitch O'Farrell is not super popular on the board uh, or on the city council. So maybe they won't go out of their way to try and save him. <laughs> but uh, but it is definitely a, uh, a potential outcome that we should be cognizant of. Good. 
Okay, let's get into the big news of the week. We already started so talking about so much big news. <laughs> we, we had a we had an election. We put up the the I really appreciated everybody retweeting our voter guide and saying nice things about us helping them be informed. We were among many different organizations that put up really cool voter guides. So tried to highlight as many of those as we could from our Twitter account. But then the election came on Tuesday. And well, what do you think? Should we talk about election day first or should we talk about results so far? Let's it was all pretty wild. Yeah, yeah it was. Thing was let's basically start, let's start by talking about our maybe the different voting experiences and what we were hearing, because I think there's two different things. There's my voting experience, which was peachy, like yeah. just where the did most, you go? Well, I went to a place that ha- I actually went went by two polling places just to check mm-hmm. them out. So I had. People in the neighborhood, you know, kind of, you know, were asking around being like, oh, did you go vote yet? I heard crazy things about lines and none of the ones in our neighborhood had lines. And there were also very many polling places within a close proximity to each other. So you, right. one was a long line. You could probably walk in like five or 10 minutes to another one. So I scoped out one and then ended up going to another one that had no line, maybe mm-hmm. like, you know, a five minute wait, plenty of voting machines, no issues, like not a problem in and out. Great. But then you looked on social media and there were lines at the Ace Hotel that were at least three hours long. Right. And then you looked at places like in Westwood and parts of Santa Monica where people said, I don't know, like at the Hammer, they said they were waiting, I don't know, three, more than three yeah, hours. Yeah, UCLA maybe four. was hit with probably the worst waits in the city. Right. And like. then even like in Long Beach, there were p- people who were still in line at like nine, I think, or ten. So... Toluca Lake, I heard, was yeah. four hours at one point. Yeah. SNL alumna Elaine Boozler was yeah. saying on Twitter that she waited for, for four hours to vote. Wow. So I was trying to get people to come to my polling places to get on the bus, right. which was free. You were, rides you were, were doing free. like a, a virtual Eli Manning thing where you were like <laughs> directing people all but, over but the if city. If you knew the line was going to be long at the A's, there were other places to go downtown that had no line. So I think, did people go to vote at the A's because it's cool or it was close the to a lot Ace of buildings was, that have a lot of people in them? The Ace was closest to like, like all the, the towers office. in South yeah, Park the, and then all the offices in mm-hmm. like downtown. It was downtown. close to where right. the office workers are. I think and that also was really cool, it. Though. It's cool to get your selfie. Yeah, until you figure oh, out that nice. it's not. So yeah, I was like, not <laughs> handicap accessible. Oh, and, and yeah, there were only that, five. There were so uh, many issues. Voting. You had to go up in an elevator. You had to, yeah, all these other. There were stairs. There, it was a really big problem. And then, but yeah, I was trying to recruit people to get out of line, get on a free bus, ride it somewhere else, and then right. go. Home. Metro was free <laughs> you know, all day. It could have been, but okay. So there's there's several issues here. I think that a lot of people, again, like I've done my neighborhood canvassing. Did not know yeah. that you could have voted could have voted earlier, and Absolutely. did not know that voting that their regular voting place might not be might not be open. open. Hey, yep. so what was what was your experience that day, or if you went earlier? Oh yeah, so, so I voted I, earlier. By the way, yeah, I had voted the day before. I dropped oh. on yeah. my vote by mail ballot at the poll center at Park La Brea. But I know just from like volunteering for Nithya Raman's campaign, a lot of people had tables set up at right. the different vote centers. I was at a table for part of the day. And that was consistent. I mean, it was really widely varied across the district where the tables were set up, where some polling centers were totally dead the entire day, no yeah. line whatsoever. And some had lines snaking around the block, either because they were more popular polling centers or because... Uh, a lot of the iPads failed 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like basically the, the technology that they were using to tally the votes electronically kept breaking. Right. I was at the Durant library on sunset in Hollywood for a part of the day where they had to bring in a whole bunch of extra iPads just to replace the ones that had failed. And that line probably got to almost two hours. Wild. So I just, I I do want to say we talked a little bit, I think last week or was it even, no, it was last week. Oh God, it feels like forever ago. (laughs) Uh, We talked about the new voting structure and, and I was like, oh, I had such a good experience. I went to the Silver Lake JCC the first day that voting centers were open. They had some issues with the with the voting uh, machines, but I didn't experience anything obviously like what happened on election day. So I do want to talk about the 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 new mode of voting in a bit more detail than we did last time. Particularly when I was talking, I was I was mostly spending my time focusing on the actual voting machines themselves. There's the interface which were amazing. The new <laughs> new voting booth interface where you like tap and it prints out your ballot for you and then you re-enter it. That was what I actually spent most of my time yeah. focusing on when we were when we were talking about how people were going to be voting. Which all, um, which seemed to work well. I think people, to work were, well. people were happy with that part of it. Yeah. With, with the caveat that there were issues for people who were unhoused and so don't have permanent addresses, they are oh. able to vote. That's more the check-in system though, I guess, right? Would it it should like have. The, it was, it was actually, that was actually the voting machine because the voting machine is supposed to take your registration info oh. and convert it into which races are you eligible Got to it. vote okay, on. So, so those machines were actually... did that for, for most of them, I think, except city council. Right. Like Only that, the most important was... one, if you might need yeah, to right. uh, register yes. your pleasure or displeasure. Right. However, though, much more significantly on election day appears to have been the issues with the tablets that people were using to intake voters. Right. And I know this because on election day, while I was in the the comfort of my own house, I voluntarily waded into the middle of the of the storm and like made a joke about how people had so much time to vote and they should have just voted earlier and then problem solved, which I subsequently walked back from because I realized that that was, you know, extremely unfair and dismissive of the, the, the people trying to do the thing that other people such as the three of us are always telling people that they should do, you know, go vote, go vote. And then, you know, don't like make fun of them for doing that. But a lot of people gave really good insights about where the breakdown occurred in this system, what happened and why it was so bad for so many people. I think a lot of it does come down to both the distribution of the voting centers the distribution of the workers at the voting centers, the distribution of the tablets that are used, right? Um, Some places have very few machines. A a lot of distribution issues. Then you also have a a second set of issues that you alluded to, Alyssa, that are about the dissemination of knowledge about how the new voting system is actually going to work. There was even like a cool thing that I didn't even know about where you could have gone online ahead of time and filled out your whole ballot, and then you they scan a QR code. You bring your phone mm-hmm. in there, and they scan your QR code. That would have been... I had no idea about I wish that. we yeah. could have told our listeners right. to at least tell people about that, because that say, would save time. You know, that would have saved a lot of time for people who had, you know, had smartphones. Had, you know, we talk about all these accessibility issues. It's, it's a big thing to make sure you have, you know, all these capabilities, and you have to reach people at different places and in different ways, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the things that... Um, 
personally that I am always so critical of municipal and local government for in the past like decade or so is this this desire that like everything has to be innovative and we have challenges that require like all new solutions to things. I, I tend to think that a lot of the time that that rhetoric is invoked, it is not actually a new challenge that we're facing. If we're talking about like transportation, moving people across the city, like that's not a new challenge. And it is actually a challenge that we have developed technology to solve. We just have to have the like the willingness to go go through with solutions that we already know work. However, one of the things that I think actually bears some innovation, and we've talked about this now in the context of voting and also earlier in the context of coronavirus is how does the government get information in front of people in such a way that they can actually know when major events, major changes are taking place? Because we have two very different scenarios where it seems like the government is failing on that mark. is I mean, is that fair to say? I, I mean, the things that, that I was, when I was talking to people, they were like, you know, why, why didn't this, infer, why didn't everybody, we can talk about, you know, what solutions we'd like to see going forward, but why didn't everybody just automatically get a vote by mail ballot, which could have solved mm-hmm. some of the weight issues, although we had an election that had a lot of things change at the presidential level in, you know, the last week. So some people ended up destroying their mail-in ballots and having to go through the process of, they'd already filled them out. They got to the voting center and they had to change, you know, change them, get a new, right. get a new ballot. That might have contributed a little bit to the problem. So why didn't everybody get a vote by mail one automatically? I think it was one thing that people might have just to move us because it wasn't part of the solution just to move us more towards a vote by mail culture because that has worked for all these accessibility issues in many places. Right. So I didn't feel that was emphasized enough. Like the point of this is not to go somewhere. And then the other point is that people really like to go somewhere to vote. And I hear that from a lot of people. They like being a part of it. They like walking to their polling place. So that, you know, sometimes decades long pattern had been disrupted by this. And people were very angry. Like they they love their polling place. They got to know the people in their neighborhood that volunteered. And I I really do understand that. So I, I was, you know, a little bit sad that people for the one thing that we do in this city where everybody is kind of in this together and has this great civic moment and a lot of pride for their neighborhood was disrupted in a way that that angered a lot of people and and weren't able to do what they normally did. And that's just us yeah. who are aware and online. Right. I, I mean, let's let's talk about that. So the the changes that that were implemented this cycle for the first time involved the replacement of the old polling place uh, model where you would go to a set location based on where your address was that you were registered to vote. And more or less, that wouldn't change. Then this new model had a much smaller number of voting centers that you could go to regardless of where you lived. This So in, in sort of retrospecting on what the county was attempting to carry off here, it seems like they were hoping that the ability to go to any voting center that you want would make up for having only 20% as many voting centers as previously. And that didn't work, largely because the intake process took so long for each individual mm-hmm. person. And and based on co- conversations that I had with people on Twitter, it seems like there was no... So I, I, I almost can't help but use the the example of the DMV, which everybody loves to complain about. But but if you think about the intake system at the DMV, where they are actually like separating you out based on why you are there and like what you need 
in order to complete your business at the DMV. You have your different letters like, oh, A57, blah, blah, blah. They like are calling you out and intaking you based on that. None of that was done here. But you have a situation where some people are there to drop off a vote by mail. As Alyssa said, some people are there to hand over a vote by mail ballot and get a new one. Some people are there who are registered for not the Democratic Party, but they are collecting a Democratic ballot. So they have to be looked up and intake. Some people have to uh, actually register on the day of the election. And some people are just trying to cast their vote. It's a ton of different things, all requiring different actions by the person who is operating the tablet and taking varying lengths of time. In the meantime, you have a line that is growing excessively long behind those people. There doesn't seem like there was any thought given or at least any structure in place to sift out like the longer yeah, somebody said in, the, in like the ace line people didn't know if they just had their mail-in ballot they could have walked to the front right. and just put it in yeah that was the one separation of use where you could you didn't have to wait in line if you had your mail-in ballot you could just drop it off right basically but yeah i agree not not that many people knew about that one thing just to give um uh, county registrar d logan a little bit of a break i do think this will kind of by definition be the worst version of this where they're right. the most growing pains where the fewest people know exactly how it works i i really like the system where you can vote in any voting center i love that voting centers are open for 11 days in advance and i think and 24 once, hours before there you there was a time you could go in the middle of the night if you wanted to to some of them yeah there was were yeah. Yeah. for party voting <laughs> and i just think you will see a distribution of the voting load into Monday and the weekend before as more people know that the system works and uh, how the system works. And there's always going to be an information gap. I mean, just being at a table outside the voting center, so many people walked by and were like, what's everyone waiting for? What's the long mm. line? Mm. Is it like a Supreme drop or something? <laughs> yeah, and now that, if the ACE like... had done something like that at the same time, <laughs> I think it would have been really smart. No, I mean, I think I agree with you. Like, I want us to move to this new system. I love that we are embracing technology as a city. And and but I also want vote by mail to be the number one choice, because that is in other states and places that have, have done that. Like, look at what's going to happen in Washington state this week has their primary and people are terrified about leaving their house or interacting with people or perhaps sure, touching yeah. a touch screen because of coronavirus fears. And you can vote by mail anywhere in Washington. And it's like, you know, it's it's just how it's done. And I think that's how we should start to think about. Yeah. Maybe you can go to like a party in your neighborhood or something like that if you want to feel <laughs> like you're voting. But I think mail is a way to go. And that is also I mean, that that is also the future for California. Every I think every county besides L.A. has already switched to mandatory vote by mail being sent to every resident without request. And I think that Los Angeles County received a special one time dispensation to not have to do that for this election I think cycle. They said over half got them, so people did. Requ well, but they requested them. But you're not yeah, supposed to right, uh, by request. Yeah, yeah you you no longer are supposed to have to request them right. because LA has so many registered voters, over five million in the county. They they got a special exemption for this one cycle, I believe, and before they have to start implementing that. Regardless, though, you shared with Hayes and I, Alyssa, that Alex Padilla, Secretary of State, had sent out. In, in the wake of the excessive wait times uh, this past week, the Secretary of State for California sent the county a letter saying they should plan to send everyone a vote by mail ballot in November. Dean Logan 
responded to that, basically saying that might not be enough to <laughs> that might, uh, which I, I uh, honestly, if you're, if you're the city clerk registrar recorder at this point in time, I would say it probably is not a great idea to like say our problems are so great that even the solution <laughs> that you're proposing is, is not a good enough solution. It might be true, but you might just say like, thank you for the tip. We'll try it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I Let's mean, talk about results, can we? Oh, you want to talk? Well, this is with the result. Wait, there were results. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, an election. Of. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot left to count. There's about 32 percent of the vote in LA County that still has not been processed. It's mostly vote by mail, but I would say for almost all the elections, we have a pretty good idea at this point of who either won outright or whether the race is going to a runoff. Um, where, where should we start? Who wants to, where is someone or just call one out? Is this going to change by the time we're, is there going to be another vote dump? No, now no. it is not going to change okay. by the time by the, this by is tomorrow. released. Okay. Just we're we're sure. recording this on Sunday and the next drop is on Tuesday. Okay, well, let's talk and, about the one that's like the, the, that just went over the 50% marker. District attorney, <laughs> Jackie Lacey. Let's talk about Jackie Lacey. Who wants to start? Where to begin? We, so it's tradition on the show that the Monday morning, Sometimes very early Monday morning after we record, the most newsworthy thing of the week happens. <laughs> and when people listen to our episode, it sounds like we are behind. Yeah. And this week, it was on Monday, there were uh, some protesters from Black Lives Matter LA outside of District Attorney Jackie Lacey's home, led by uh, Melina Abdullah, who has uh, spoken out against Jackie Lacey for a long time. The fact that she is one of but basically the prosecutor that has recommended the death penalty one of the most times in the country right only against non-white accused criminals yep and has also never prosecuted a police officer despite overseeing the most deadly police force in the country among other things yep and jackie lacy's husband whose name escapes me now does everyone know his name not offhand okay the video emerged of him basically pointing a gun finger on the trigger. That is what he was doing. Yes, at these protesters who were very calm yeah. under the circumstances. <laughs> yes, I would say so. But they're used to. I mean, like Malia Abdullah and uh, Patrice Colors and other people in this organization are used to getting harassed and arrested for these uh, protests over the years. But this was the most extreme version of it. By far. Yes. Wasn't just like, like Jackie Lacey described it as him showing them the gun. Yes. Which they got a, a pretty good view. I don't know. She, if she, know yes. Jackie Lacey, hours after this footage was released Monday morning, held a press conference in which she she said that her, her husband was afraid for their safety. And she, she said that he had subsequently apologized for showing them a weapon. Yes, that was at very close range, pointing it at Dr. Melina Abdullah's chest. I guess you could call it showing them a gun. <laughs> it's not like flashing a piece or something. It is It is distinctly, um, he is holding it inches away from them and saying, I will shoot you. I don't care who you are. And this yeah. was the day before the election, if you, you know, piecing right. the timeline together. So yeah. you also wonder if... That, We're nine, that, nine days after the election, that, <laughs> depending on how you take the view <laughs> of the new voting period. Um, but yeah, you, you wonder if that also might have played into, for the people who are 
very interested in that. What yeah. Happened? So, I mean, we still have we still have a lot of votes left to count, as Hayes was saying, in, in this race, which is a countywide race. So we expect there to be a ton of votes. There already have been, I think, over, oh, God, almost over a million cast in this in this particular race for district attorney. So currently, as of Friday, as of the most recent vote drop that we have, Jackie Lacey is, I think, 35, something like that, 35 votes out of all of those under the 50% threshold that she would need to stay out of a runoff in November, which is incredible news. She is a a two-term incumbent um, holding a powerful office that few people know much about. So her two opponents... George Gascon and and Rachel Rossi, who is currently in in third place. Gascon seems like he is on track to be the the second place candidate in that. But that uh, was closer. I just want to say, like like Rachel Rossi, I think overperformed a lot of people's expectations. Oh yeah, yeah those are they're very close. Yeah, yeah. She was running as a as a public defender, which is very rare for somebody running for the district attorney's office. Usually, prosecutors run. And George Gascon is the former district attorney of. San Francisco and had the endorsement of the L.A. Democratic Party and the L.A. Times and other like huge institutions and outraised Rachel Rossi by a lot. Yeah. And I. Yeah. Go ahead. They're like five points apart right now. Yeah. Like like it's like 27 to 22 percent. I mean, that's that's amazing. It's really it is an impressive showing by by Rossi. I, I think at this point in time, you know, the the margin is continually shifting in favor of the challengers i feel i it's hard to feel super confident when the when the margin is so narrow but i do feel like we are going to see it continue to grow as we move towards the the ballots being certified later later this month i hope (laughs) hopefully not in april The only reason that that might not happen that it that it might swing back towards lacy is the fact that the vast majority of the ballots that are left are vote by mail, but which it's later. Mm. It's later vote by mail, which tends to lean more. Oh, I see what you're saying. Just, right. They would have come in late. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. So let's go to other just really quickly. Other county races. We saw one of the supervisorial districts will also head into runoff. Something that we had been talking about here, which also was, I think, kind of like a great showing by Holly Mitchell. Yeah. So this 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 was a race where there were a number of challengers. We had Jake Jong of Koreatown. Of course, we endorsed Holly Mitchell versus outgoing city council member Herb Wesson, former council president Wesson. And then there was also Jan Perry, who had previously served on the, the city council as well. I, I think that right now we're looking at both Wesson and Mitchell in what, like the low 30s, high yeah, 20s? So I, yeah, so I have the numbers. Wesson is at 31.88% and Holly Mitchell is at 26.31%. Right, yeah. Right. So they're, yeah, they're, they're pretty close. I think it's unclear. I mean, impossible to say basically how a significant number of votes that didn't go to either of them will uh, be distributed in the runoff. But yeah, I mean, like you were saying, there were seven people that made the ballot, which makes it very difficult um, for even a very strong, powerful candidate like Herb Wesson to to break 50 percent. But I think he would have liked to have gotten closer, given (laughs) that he outspent all the other candidates by a lot, had 
had a lot of institutional support. Had branded uh, coffee, like for his. <laughs> yes, had branded coffee. Check out Herb Weston's uh, coffee beans. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I I do have to say though, I, I think you know the the we we can't say how those votes will split up, but but that's also not a passive process. There, there's a, nope. a long long campaign season now. I still feel very good about Holly Mitchell being on the. Honestly, if we can, so if you have two politicians the way that we do in in the city and county of LA, Herb Weston and Mark Ridley Thomas, who are behind closed doors saying they want to swap seats and they're just going to like best friends it through across the finish line. Anything that happens to disrupt that is probably a good thing. And I, I do still feel very good about Holly Mitchell taking that seat over Herb Wesson. And I, I, I was very pleased to see that Sacramento leaders, Jerry Brown and other California state legislators were willing to step into this local election and lend their support to Holly Mitchell. I hope that we'll continue to see that throughout the rest of this year. But yeah, that that was that was actually somewhat of a surprising result to me, what you said, Hayes, that he didn't get closer to that 50 percent mm-hmm, mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, between uh, Herb Wesson running for supervisor and Mark Ridley Thomas running for city council, I would much rather be Mark Ridley Thomas after uh, these elections. They're both going to a runoff. Should we talk about that? Yeah, I'll talk about that one next. Yep. So city council races, there were two open seats. One of them was Council District 10, which runs from uh, parts of Koreatown, parts of South LA, south of the town. Uh, And this was the seat that Herb Wesson vacated, that Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas wants to run for and then win and then immediately run for mayor at the, at the first opportunity. He is in a runoff as well, but in a pretty powerful uh, position. He has 46.3% of the vote. Yep. Uh, and the next runner-up is at 23.83. And that runner-up is Grace Yu, who is a Koreatown neighborhood activist, probably best known for protesting a few different developments, uh, including a residential tower and most notably uh, the homeless shelter, the bridge housing that Herb Wesson initially tried to plant uh, in Koreatown. And it's just basically, I mean, like Mark Ridley Thomas in the aftermath was very arrogant about it as he tends to be. Oh yeah. Uh, so like, the voters got it right. 46% for Ridley Thomas, 23% for Grace U. But I mean, it really does look like he can kind of coast to victory uh, in the aftermath of this. However, this is still very annoying for him that he has to participate in a runoff at all because, like we were saying, he is nakedly uh, interested in being mayor and not a council member. Again, he was a council member years ago. And as he now has to pretend to care about being on city council for the next eight months, other candidates are now going to announce they're running for mayor and essentially get a head start on Mark Ridley Thomas mm, in, in that race, right. which is two so one, years from now. One of them being? Who, the, a guy who looks like he's going to win the other open yeah. seat on the city council, Council, council District 14, vacated by uh, Jose Huizar, which, I mean, the big winner in all this by far is Jose Huizar, who looks like he is now going to be able <laughs> yep. to finish his term from the cuff with the FBI investigation, which apparently is still pending against him. But Kevin DeLeon, former uh, state Senate president and candidate for U.S. Senate against Dianne Feinstein, is right now has 53.43% of the vote. And that appears that to be holding. 
Yeah, that one has re- remained like really static with basically every drop. It's not like falling towards 50 or really increasing. And the next runner-up is Cindy Otteson with 18.25% of the vote. That's a good showing. I mean, like, she entered this race as a, a, a total political unknown, basically. Yep. And to beat out someone like Monica Garcia, for example, who right now is in fourth with yeah. 11.05% of the vote. Monica Garcia was president of the LAUSD board, right. was like a pretty powerful, like well-known political figure who raised a lot of money in this race. Uh, for her to finish fourth is a pretty big disaster. Right. But yeah, it looks like De Leon, who also has made it very obvious that he wants to be mayor, is going to be able to announce next week. I mean, who knows? Like we, I, I, I predict that we're going to see, God, like oh, more than two and a half years in advance uh, of the of the final election for mayor. Those campaigns are going to start really soon. Well, I mean, so, so stupid. <laughs> It, it's perhaps even more pressing than you said for Mark Ridley Thomas, because, uh, I mean, we're in a position now where regardless of uh, whoever <laughs> this makes happy or unhappy, there's a, a very real chance that Joe Biden goes to Washington and, and takes presumably Eric Garcetti with him. Like Garcetti could yeah. not more. Be, he has a jaunt in his step. He is like smiling yeah. on podiums. He could not yeah. be more thrilled at the prospect of getting out of LA before totally. 2022. So if any opportunity should show its head for him to do that, then he is going to to seize it uh, with both hands. So I, I mean, for a Mark Ridley Thomas or something like if he is still in, engaged in running for city council by the time 2021 or 2020 comes to an end, then yeah, he's at a, a severe disadvantage in the presumptive race to to run for a mayor incumbency. So yeah, okay. Let's... I mean the real. I mean like the real thing I want to say is good luck to any resident of Council Districts ten or fourteen in uh, getting a meeting with their council members. Yeah, seriously. Uh, in the next two years, basically, because they're going to be campaigning all over the city in that time. Let's let's talk CD twelve yeah. real quick. So we have North. West Valley, Porter Ranch, CSUN, Northridge, West Hills, all those areas. This is the seat currently occupied by the city's lone independent or Republican, if you're uh, paying a little bit more attention, um, <laughs> John Lee. And he is running for the second time against Lorraine Lundquist. They are the only two in this race. So uh, contrary to something I think I said earlier, there, there definitely will not be a, a runoff in this race. This one is for keeps. Lorraine Lundquist is, I think, da- at down, what, like two, three points at this point? I think now, she, yeah, she's down basically four. It's 52 to 48, pretty okay. much. Yeah. This is one where we haven't seen, I, I would say we haven't seen enough motion in favor of Lorraine, who is the progressive running in this race, to feel confident that she will end up on top here. But I also don't feel like, I don't think that we can definitively say that Lee is going to walk away with this seat either at this point, depending yeah. on what the margin is on the the remaining votes, which there are presumably a substantial number of. It could go either way and it could be extremely close and end up going to a, a recount. Honestly, this this race is a black eye for all 14 members of uh, of all 14 members of the city council who are not named John Lee. Because none of them decided that it was important enough to support 
their own policies that they would endorse Lorraine Lundquist, who supports those policies, over John Lee, who has uh, almost to a one gone out of his way to try and trash those policies. We talked recently about Mitchell Farrell of CD13 actually stumping for John Lee the week before the election. This is this is just disgusting. Honestly, it, it, it makes me very sad that we have a district that has been Republican forever, which is not a, a hotbed of progressive activity that could have like had at least some institutional support for a progressive voice. And, and we got the opposite instead. Yeah, basically, Zier, at best, uh, council members just sat it out entirely. And you had people like Herb Wesson, who endorsed Lorraine Lundquist in the in the special election and then flipped to John Lee yep. when all that happened in between is John Lee took office and did exactly what he promised to do and pushed back on all the policies that Herb Wesson and the other Democratic council members claim to care about. But self-preservation and just creating an atmosphere of powerful supporting each other is so much more important to this body yeah. than actually advancing any policy, especially progressive policy. This is yeah, um, this is closing ranks. Like uh, that oh, is yeah. that is all it is. I think I think that there is I think that there is a mentality on city council that the kind of thing that we talk about, hey, as you you had the the stat about 99.37% of all of the votes being unanimous. I think the mentality on city council is preserving the ability to do that is is the only thing that they care about. Yeah, definitely. Although I do want to point out that it doesn't necessarily matter. Like the endorsement of every other city council member does not guarantee any uh, incumbent a win. Like nobody really knows or cares who these people are and they don't dictate elections necessarily. I do think with Dr. Lundquist running again, really for the third time after the initial primary and the special election and then the general and now like going back to it again, I think there was a little fatigue around the race. And in the last time she benefited from that being one of the only races people were paying attention to. So she was able to get mm-hmm. more canvasser support and things like that. Uh, whereas this time it felt like it got washed out a little bit more compared to other races going on around the city and the president, the presidential election going on where she just needed a little bit of an extra push that she didn't necessarily get. I think a lot of people were just kind of thinking, Oh, well the, the like people vote more progressive in the presidential cycle. So she should just by virtue of that alone, she should do better than she did last time and she'll be fine. Right. But she did need a level of enthusiasm that didn't really materialize. Well, let's talk about the, the the other race that I think did probably suck up a lot of the the oxygen in in terms of city races, Council District 4, which Hayes yes. has been closely involved with. And do you want to talk about for the umpteenth time the Council District 4 race and where we're at right now? Yeah, so there, so in addition to John Lee who had just been elected to city council in a special election a few months earlier, there were four other incumbents who were running for re-election. Three of them absolutely rolled with, like, no interference whatsoever. Paul Krikorian in District 2, Nuri Martinez in District 6, Marquise Harris-Dawson in District 8. He was running unopposed. No one else even uh, made the ballot. The one real exception is in Council District 4, Councilmember David Rue is, by all appearances, heading to a runoff and a pretty competitive runoff against Nithya Raman, like you said, Scott. 
I have volunteered for this campaign a lot. You have contributed as mm-hmm. well. Your partner was a, a field director on the campaign. I, uh, far from apologizing for any of this, I think we are all very proud. I am extremely have, proud of it. Yeah, <laughs> to have contributed to this effort. This is like, first of all, just an incoming getting to a runoff is a very unusual thing. Uh, it's only happened one. Uh, so it happened in 2002 when Nick Pacheco lost outright via Reynosa yep. on his way to becoming mayor in, 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 in the primary. And Pacheco had all kinds of like shouldn't should have resigned by that point. Right. He had all kinds of like scandals that he had been tainted by. And then the only one after that was in 2017 when Joe Blaley got to the runoff barely, barely, barely against Gil Cedillo. I remember that one took days to fall under 50% yep. and ended at like 49.7 for Cedillo or something. And Cedillo won by a lot in the in the runoff. This one does feel different for a, a few reasons. One was just the amount of institutional advantage that David Rue had in this race. He spent more money than any other city council candidate ever in a primary more than a million dollars had about 200 grand in outside PAC spending on top of that. He had all of the institutional support that you could possibly have for a race like this. Every elected official at the local and state and federal level that represents LA endorsed him, every Dem club, every newspaper, uh, the only mainstream groups that endorsed Nithya were uh, Churla, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles, right. and the League of Conservation Voters, who did a co-endorsement with Nithya and Drew. I mean, really, like you said, like you were implying, Scott, that like, this race did consume a lot of energy, and it was kind of a test of whether that energy could be generated, whether yeah. a city council candidate could get people excited about a local race at all. And if she could, like, what could she do with that energy? And the answer was yes, a council candidate could produce that kind of energy. And what she could do with it is recruit 700 unique volunteers uh, to knock on 83,000 doors. Yeah. Which is like basically, I think, unprecedented. I have no reason to believe that's ever happened before. I mean, we're talking about what what it takes to as we're, as we're sitting here, we still don't know what the final numbers will be, but it it yeah. seems like both candidates are trending toward a finish in the low uh 40% uh range with Sarah Kate Levy who also ran on a a, a campaign of like street safety and and that was very critical of David Rue. Directly well. oppositional to Rue. She is, I think, currently around 15%. So we are we are talking about what it takes for uh, a challenger to an incumbent to meet a mark very similar to where, where that incumbent ends up. And honestly, the amount of effort the and the ground game, both in terms of the the political cliche and also the organization that that takes that name that was required to be employed in order to get the to get the voters to know who this challenger is why she's running why the incumbent is not good who the incumbent is you know these are all questions that need to be answered and established well in advance for any challenger in districts as large as these to, to have a chance and that I think is is an unqualified success at this point. And then the question becomes, how do you carry that forward in, in November? But I, I think really this is this is a victory for everybody in LA who subscribes to progressive politics, who wants to see 
changes to the culture at City Hall. In, tor- in terms of forcing the door open, I think that Nithya and and her campaign and her supporters have, have done that. So really impressive. And, and I think, yeah, just like as far as like positioning for the general, so when Nithya entered the race, David Rue had already raised about 750 grand, possibly more. That money is gone. Right. Now they are basically at zero zero in terms of money right uh but what has not gone away is nithya's name recognition she was starting with zero yep and now she has quite a bit yep and i think has generated some momentum around just the fact that she's getting into a runoff at all that she i can only really build from from here i mean both candidates have made their case basically and I think that, you know, just in terms of momentum and, and growth, that's clearly on Nithya's side. It has to be maintained and it's hard to keep that energy level going. But I wonder what will be the result of the fact that now it will be one of the only local races, especially if Joe Biden is on the ballot, the president, that people are really rallying behind that and the DA race, right. basically, I think are the ones where where progressives will, will will try and get their their people in office. You know, I, I do. I have to say, too, I think that one of the things that one of the things that is really impressive to me about this race and about the support that that Nithya has gotten outside of the the typical circle of, of the relatively small number of people who care about local politics, just like naturally, that we have seen a lot of people as as this sort of progressive movement has grown in LA, I think come to the realization that that LA was never really as as liberal or or whatever you might want to call it as as they had maybe initially been led to believe. And this this notion that like we don't actually have a, a city council that goes out of its way to protect vulnerable residents or to expand rights for people who live here or or anything like that. In fact, usually it's it's the opposite and and sort of start asking themselves this question with everybody who lives here this diverse, you know, intensely human fabric of this city, why is it that there has never been a progressive Los Angeles city government? And I think that that maintains uh, and generates the enthusiasm that we're we're starting to see here. So, it's a it's a huge step in the right direction in my view. Yeah, and I think that Nithya cuts through that a little bit by, like, her campaign sort of went beyond, like, hey, like, everyone be nice, like, let's have empathy. Right. She it was very policy forward, and she used, she has a lot of experience in this area, and basically said, like, this is what works. Providing services works. Making uh, shelter and housing available works. Protecting tenants helps keep people off the street. Like, we know the policies that will help us get out of it, and they'll save us money that we're currently spending on the emergency of homelessness, like she had policy every time she spoke, like everywhere she went. And that is not something that city council candidates do for the most part. Like local officials uh, don't like to get into too much detail. But I think it helped in this case because people are so desperate for someone to like, you know, give like really like aggressive strategies for how to get out of this emergency and climate change and the other things that we're facing on the, the, the city level. So that was really encouraging too, just that you can say exactly what you want to do and like articulate your position very clearly and not 
have to dodge and still have people get behind uh, a campaign. As someone who has written, has read and written about every single presidential candidate's plan for housing, transportation, climate, Nithya had better formed policy platforms than some of the people who were running for president. And maybe that are currently still running for president. (laughs) Are are likely to get the nomination at this point. Yeah. Joe Biden did finally come out with a housing plan, right? Right. The day before Super Tuesday. It was was actually right after we we talked about him not having one still. Yeah, it was the it was yeah, the around the debate time. And I yeah, I spent a week time this this week writing about even the and we can briefly talk about the president you know, results, I guess, but like writing about the very specific different approaches that Biden and Sanders were taking coming into Super Tuesday and how what Sanders was doing was really speaking to the people who were displaced, evicted, like, you know, these corporate landlords, these things we've been talking about here in L.A. and on our mm-hmm. show um, constantly and really obviously resonated, like trounced Biden in with, with just the L.A. County vote. I think 10 point margin for Sanders. So in, far, yeah. So far as to see if that's changed. So it's it is a progressive way. Perhaps we'll see if that momentum carries elsewhere. But I would also at, at the state level or in San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi got primaried, which is very interesting mm-hmm. in, a, in a progressive conversation. Yeah. She, uh, she, for the first time, she's going to be facing a Democrat in in November. So, congrats to the to the folks up there who made that happen. That's that's an impressive victory. What else do we want to talk about from this past? Couple week? more races down here. I think we can briefly talk about Measure R. This is that was the county measure to provide more to give the board of supervisors more oversight over the sheriff's department and establish more diversionary programs for people instead of being in jail go to. Get mental health treatment. It absolutely dominated. 71.7%. Yeah. Yes. That is so exciting. That a ballot measure with like kind of not super clear language, right. like a little bit of clear language was able to get that many people to vote yes on it is, is really impressive. Also, LAUSD board district seven and so two races are going to run off. One is Scott Schmerelson in District 3, who is considered uh, one of the more teachers union friendly members of the board, is going up against, it looks like, Marilyn Kozieta. But the, the closer race is the open seat in LAUSD Board District 7. Patricia Castellano, uh, who is also considered to be the teachers union candidate, is currently in first with 26.7 votes. But right behind her is Tanya Ortiz Franklin, who has 23.7% uh, of the vote. And Tanya Franklin, in interviews and stuff, likes to say, like, oh, I don't like being put in a box. Right. It's, like, it's the charter union thing, you know, like, what does that really mean? But her, her money is coming from the charter industry right. and, and, and the people who support it. Mike Bloomberg's daughter is a max donor to her. <laughs> in the Bay Area, who in Eli Road together have uh, contributed a lot of money to pre-turner interests. So this race does look like it is shaking out the way a lot of the other ones have along pro-union, pro-charter lines. So that's another one that I think people are going to be paying a lot of attention to in, in November. We'll have to uh, talk more about this uh, on a future episode because I'm, I'm, I am curious. One of the things that we talked about previously was the, like, is the, is the charter money running out? Like are, are people just, are the people funding this effort tired of, of losing? But it seems like maybe not, maybe they're <laughs> deep not pockets. Not if Mike Bloomberg <laughs> like has something so, to do with it. Right. Yeah. 
And Jackie Goldberg in District 5 won pretty handily. She has like about 57% of the vote right now and did have, if you live in her district, you could see that the money spent against her in your mailbox every day with these bizarre mailings from this guy, guy Bill Bloomfield, who's right. a pro-charter guy. But that does not appear to have been successful. Though otherwise, this week, as we mentioned at the top, we have the LA Marathon going on. This was, that was a curious choice for me just because we didn't have like, uh, this was our first week being a city on a state of emergency. They had the, yep. they had a press conference where they said so far, no known cases of community spread in LA, but we're going on emergency. I don't actually know what it means for the city to be in a state of emergency for, for a, a virus. Well, you, you saw a bunch of different examples of it across the country, you know, now that at the moment right now, I think New York, New York has there are a lot of them are statewide declarations. So the cities, a lot of cities came first. So San Francisco, I mentioned, came first a few weeks ago. L.A. This was this week. But we also saw South by Southwest, which did like yeah. a, a disaster declaration. So they yeah. actually declared mm-hmm. it as a disaster, both in the city of Austin and Travis County, which is, you know, compasses. And then I don't know what came from the state, but that that declaration often helps you access funds or gets uh-huh. you prioritization of certain, you know, whatever you need, whether it's staff or medical supplies, things like that, you know, it sounds like it could insurance be insurance. insurance related, of course, because that was, yep. you know, the canceling of that festival is hugely impactful for yep. uh, the region. So you, yeah, it, it sounds terrifying, you know, to hear, to hear emergency declaration, but I would point to more and, and I, I don't know if they should have canceled it. I, I agree that, it's impossible to do the social distance as somebody who has run the LA Marathon. There are people shoving on you the entire time. Plus the the people who are cheering, you're crowding next to the street with yeah. people. And, you know, it's just hopefully people can spread out and, and do what they need to do. Keep themselves safe, not go if they don't want to go. Maybe get their money back if they were signed up to you know, raise and didn't want to didn't want to go. But as I'll say again, like what is being implemented in some place like San Francisco that is seeing community spread that has come out and said, you know, we have some cases that we don't, we can't trace them back. We can't do this kind of, we can't do, we can't look at where, where people were um, in contact with other people who we know to have had it. But also we don't have the testing. And this is something we've, you know, we'll come yep. up again this week, throughout this week. We are like among the last nations to decide that we are going to test people right. and create this like comprehensive ability to know if people yeah. have it. And we have two airport screeners that tested positive, you know, for, for being, for, for the, for coronavirus. So we, yep. we, you can only imagine that the numbers are going to grow a lot this week oh, with yeah. what we're going to know. And it's going to be, you're going to hear the first case here, the first case here. I think just before we started recording, there was a case in Throughout Rancho, middle, Rancho Mirage. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's somebody tested negative in Long Beach, but they were worried about another cruise ship coming in, things like this. It's going to happen very fast. And we're going to hear numbers that sound scary, but we need to really listen to, again, what the county, who I believe are, are very competent more than our, you know, yeah. more than our federal government, do not listen to anything they say and listen to... Trusted people, uh, you know, uh, scientists. Did you see Ben Carson trying <laughs> to talk ben about... Carson will, uh, uh, the only God. medical doctor that we actually do have a medical doctor in the federal cabinet right now and who could, would not really talk about anything or any of the plans. There's a plan, plan to house people who are getting off of the, the cruise right. ship that's currently off the coast of California. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, very rambling, like, I, I don't want there to be 16 different people telling you different plans. <laughs> And George Stephanopoulos was like, there have been zero people telling us yeah, what the plan is. You would be the first and you are a doctor. Because there is no plan. Someone who does understand. But I would just say in this week, I mean, 
we'll probably start to see things like large gatherings. I don't know if there's what the sports schedule is like this week. There's been games being played in other parts of the state where they they play the games and nobody attends. Yeah. I think LeBron said he would refuse to play if the fans were not there, which right. I think is... Well, it's his choice. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. But we were going to do whatever see, you want. Just don't talk about <laughs> Chinese politics. We're going to have some upheaval in our lives. And again, you know, just keep your I, I'm trying to like listen to what people are saying. Hopefully the message messages will get out, but also do what you need to do to keep yourself safe. So if you don't feel comfortable going to something like the LA Marathon, you should not. Go. I, just thought, I thought it was interesting messaging because because when they did the, the press conference about the emergency declaration, it was like, you know, limit social gatherings and things like that, which seems to me like it is that's a more. That's not what they said. They didn't say it's social distancing. So it's well. So the bigger thing that's been announced in San okay. Francisco is like we are recommending that large gatherings be canceled. They are they are more they are a step above of, of us in this, okay. this like hierarchy of decisions being made. So okay. recommendation in a place like C- City of San Francisco, they've closed I think all public buildings for gatherings. They've they they shut they they canceled Sunday streets today the day that we're filming this. Mm-hmm. They're Ciclovia basically because they are like one step beyond us either knowing how many people actually are testing and how it is being transmitted. Or they just feel more confident in their decision about what they need to cancel. And we... So LA just said six feet is fine. We're saying social distancing, which is not the social, you know, don't cancel social gatherings, but try to keep, try to limit your interaction physically with people around you, which also sounds scary. It really does, you know, and and who knows what could change. There could be an announcement tomorrow where they said we have a hundred more cases we we now have community spread and these are our, our new guidelines. I, I I don't know who like unif- unilaterally would have the ability to like cancel an, an event like this. The the LA Marathon is is jointly put on by there's there's an organization. There's also the the cities that it runs through. The I think four different cities that the the marathon's route goes through. I kind of I I like I can't help but wonder if like as as. Garcetti is operating now as like a member of the Biden campaign and also as like a representative of the city of L.A. You do have to wonder like how much of his attention is on issues like this versus on the like national profile that he's. How about the fact that we announced our emergency declaration the day after Election Day, the morning after the election? Right. So I can see a lot of people if, say, we have a lot of cases Right. That mm-hmm. end up coming up in the next week. And I'm not saying this is happening or that, you know, this is proven. But, you know, it's we wanted people to vote. We wanted people to get out there and be around other people and, and get their votes in. Yeah. But at the and the same thing with the marathon, it's just it's the same thing. Like if you if someone. If it comes out that there was an infection through the marathon, what what happens? Do you sue Who's going to be suing the city if, you know, there's going to be some kind of like repercussions for if it comes out later. And I think that's what somebody like South by Southwest was very concerned about. Like if yeah. they, it was proven that one of these gatherings Are was going liable? to, to yeah. you know, change the trajectory of, of this virus. I think that's that's something we really need. Hopefully somebody is thinking about that. And hopefully yeah. and I did. If they had declared this the morning of the election, that would have been really detrimental to the election. You So you have to think yeah. about I don't I don't know if they had the information at the time and you know if things change and you have to make sure that you are doing everything that's right for the city but also 
how, how you're right. Like, how do we know that the decisions are being made? I think it's absolutely a fair question. You know, how, how is your joint role? Like you don't have to be the head of Biden's uh, campaign. How is your role doing that affecting decisions that you would otherwise be making for the city of LA? If you're trying to not cast a negative light or be a, a drag on Joe Mentum as you well, you know, like how how are those affecting decisions that might be made at, at City Hall? Though that I think is a, a fair question for people to ask uh, city leaders. Yeah, and it, it wasn't just the mayor, uh, Mike Bonin, Councilmember Mike Bonin was the only one I saw um, even suggesting that the marathon should be canceled. He didn't. It wasn't like a full throated statement that he should cancel it, but he said that he thought it was probably not worth it. That's exactly the right way to phrase it, I think. And and how I thought about going to South by Southwest is just not worth it to possibly introduce that thought. I don't know, to right. me. Right. But I, I I think there is value. And so like, by deciding to go through with it, to, to, to run the marathon, you are basically communicating to your city that this is not something that you are that worried about as a as a city government or you're, that you're willing to t- you think the risk is small enough and that you're willing to take it. Right. By canceling it, you communicate to your city that like, hey, this is something that we all really have to be on high alert about. You have to be changing your own behavior and looking out for your neighbors because this has potential to get really bad. Right. When you say things like we don't have any cases of community spread, you are radically overstating the confidence oh, that yeah, any for sure. person in the medical profession has about how many cases there are in Los Angeles. There are way more. Right. than we know of. That's a very good point. Because of like testing right. capabilities. And people talk about like, oh, it's in C- it's all over Seattle. It's like everywhere in Seattle right now. Seattle has way more tests and has been testing a lot more. Yeah. Than, I mean, they had this flu study where they had right. a system up and running. Yeah. So we could very easily have the same level of severity that Seattle has right now. Yes. But we're still at a place where people, even people that show up with symptoms, I mean, God, when I was sick a couple of weeks ago, I went to the doctor with exactly the same symptoms that are now being talked about as indicating coronavirus. And there was never any discussion right. of testing me for it. Right. right. And I, where we haven't heard, too, is when San Francisco made their two separate announcements, one was uh, Friday and then another one was Saturday about new cases and how they were testing for it and partnerships with local labs at universities. I have not heard that same announcements come from our local schools and if they have testing capabilities set up and if we are just getting the information that we need to have as a city. And like I said, again, the airport screener thing is concerning because the the two people, people, that people have come through the airport and and yes, they're going to be, they're very good at that. They're tracing content. They're probably going through and looking at every single, you know, the videos you've seen how they can do this piece, piece together who, who has been in contact, but this is, going to be us. I'm just going to say again, it's going to probably be a very scary week. And there's no reason that you personally should feel, you know, scared. Hopefully you went to Costco and you feel better about that decision, but just take (laughs) care of each other and look in on people who we know are most vulnerable, people who are older, people who have underlying health conditions, people who do not have a place to go home to if the recommendation is go home. I mean, that is the thing I can't stress enough about we have rainstorms coming through this week. It's going to be very tough. Like, really look out for each other and take care of each other. Two uh, minor stories, not minor, but uh, two stories that we probably don't have time to get into too much. One that we missed last week, which was in the aftermath of Kobe Bryant and Gianna Bryant's uh, death and nine others in a helicopter 
the stories emerged that the members of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department deputies had taken pictures of the wreckage and the bodies and sent it around to each other. And then there was a report that they had been ordered to delete those pictures without telling anyone by Sheriff Alex Villanueva. And then the deputies denied that. And then the sheriff basically said, no, I did. Yeah, he so he came out and actually took uh, took credit for the order to what some people in this LA Times uh, story about this were saying substantially amounts to an, an order from on high to obstruct justice or delete evidence. Tamper basically. with evidence? Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I mean, I saw Alex Villanueva referred to as like the best campaigner for Measure R that they could possibly have. <laughs> <laughs> getting ready to vote on supervising uh, his own department. He just cannot stop saying, yes, I desperately need more supervision. <laughs> also a story in today, Sunday's LA Times, uh, a really fascinating one about the uh, AIDS Healthcare Foundation. We talked about a lot on this show a nonprofit that has spent a lot of money in uh, the political arena resisting development in Los Angeles. They, in the last couple of years, have gotten into buying up low-income multifamily buildings, basically uh, hotel, single-room occupancy hotels around Skid Row and running them themselves. And based on this story by Gail Holland today, that does not appear to be working. The AIDS Healthcare Foundation is blaming the city, but the buildings are in extreme disrepair. I think the article said that one of the elevators has been working for nine months. Bathrooms have been completely ripped out. And they're saying that AIDS Healthcare Foundation is really just another slumlord replacing the old one. And what I think is interesting about this, when they said that they were taking over these properties, they were already being run as low in, uh, low income residential properties. Yep. They never really said, they said they were going to repaint. Yep. But beyond that, what they were going to do differently. And it so far, it doesn't seem like that much. They are possibly are evicting more people. Right. That's right. That was a big thing. Yeah. Uh, so they've, they have uh, something like half of these units are, are vacant and they have evicted a number of tenants for, Things like late payment of rent and this in the context of the slum-like conditions that they are overseeing here has also driven a lot of complaint in comparison to the previous the previous owners of this building who were forced out for being slumlords. Michael Weinstein, he, he has not an ounce of self-reflection as far as I can tell in his entire body and mm-hmm. his quotes are all over this piece to the extent mm. that does anybody work at this organization who who might be able <laughs> to like forcibly back him away from a, a microphone like i don't even understand some of these he's saying the responsibility is 100 percent with the city and the dwp yeah subsequently then he says oh well we're still learning how to do this well i mean the learning curve isn't a factor if it's entirely the city's fault right like yeah. What I don't, I don't even know what he's trying to get at, except for the fact that he refuses to admit culpability for anything in uh, what I would say is the grand tradition of slumlords. Like the, nobody comes yeah. out and says, yes, I'm a slumlord. I shouldn't be taking care of this property. They say, no, it's not my fault that this con- this property is in this condition, which is exactly what he's saying here. He also says, in order to make the project financially viable and build self-sufficiency, we exercise tough love on paying the rent. Build self-sufficiency is the classic, like, conservative, like, bootstraps language. Right. Anti-housing uh, first language. 
Absolutely. And talking about like making the project financially viable, that would be a lot more credible if the AIDS Healthcare Foundation were not flushing tens of millions of dollars into political campaigns at the same time as right. their buildings are floundering and elderly and disabled people have to somehow get up five flights of stairs to get to who, I like, mean, who is this organization like that? I think it's an inescapable question. Like, who is this organization? Who is the AIDS Healthcare Foundation? actually existing for is it just to be the the bursar for uh whatever michael weinstein's pet project of the day is or do they actually intend to benefit other people besides himself at some point along the line i mean it seems like i know we said we didn't have time to get into this but um these buildings were purchased in the aftermath of the failure of one of his ballot initiatives, it was either Prop Center or maybe right after Measure S, I think, which was an anti-new development ballot measure that we've talked about a lot on the show before. Shortly after its failure, he bought these buildings. I, I think it's kind of a political gesture to show, like, I do care about affordable housing and I am going to show how much better I am at managing it than the city is. But this seems like it's kind of what happens when you purchase a building for political reasons and not necessarily for the result of taking care of the yeah. people inside. Right. I know the state is, I mean, I think California YIMBY or some other, that, that, they just sued the AIDS Healthcare Foundation for um, basically violating the terms of their nonprofit status, I believe, for not reporting spending that they, uh, yeah, lobbying activity some point it does feel like the state has to get involved and say like hey this is clearly not under the like the terms of your agreement you are not acting as a nonprofit. you are primarily a political organization i mean like i don't know all like all these things are just like very well, uh, so the, the 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 lawsuit that you're talking about there they they can engage in lobbying whatever but the the specific claim there was that there was lobbying that they had not declared in terms of their efforts to stop SB 50, another bill that we've talked about at length in Sacramento, that the the thing that my question, I guess, becomes less about Michael Weinstein, who is such a known quantity in terms of local and state politics at this point, and more about the board of this nonprofit. Like you have somebody here who bombastic doesn't even begin to describe it, but he, he if he can't even own up to the conditions that he is causing to exist at, at this building that, that your foundation is or that your nonprofit is operating. How is that somebody who should be in charge of, of a nonprofit organization like the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, whose mandate is to protect people who are vulnerable? I, I don't understand how, how the board of this organization could not in some way step in and try to just get him in line even a little bit. It's it's a mm-hmm. bit baffling to me, frankly. It's a uh, a must-read article. The headline is AIDS Healthcare Vowed to Do Homeless Housing Better. Tenants say it's a slumlord. It is really worth reading the entire thing. That's, that's it for this week, right? Yeah, that is it for Never our show. Be anymore. Hey, stay, <laughs> safe travels. Try not to be a pedestrian in beaches that you could walk to. Um, and thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.